Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. Today I'm speaking to Laura and Stephen Shihai about psychoanalysis in Palestine. Together, Laura and Stephen have authored Psychoanalysis Under Occupation, which is recently published in paperback with Routledge. The book collects together the perspectives and insights of Palestinian psychiatrists, therapists and other medical health professionals in a document of the psychologically extractive process of settler colonialism. In this episode, we discuss what it means to practice psychoanalysis in Palestine under constant attack from the settler colonial project of the Israeli state. I ask them how Palestinian clinicians see their role in the liberation struggle and what their work teaches us about the relationship between the psychic and the political. Dr. Laura Shihai is an assistant professor of clinical psychology at the George Washington University and founding director of psychoanalysis and the Arab World Lab. Stephen Shihai is the Sultan Qaboos Professor of Middle East Studies at William & Mary and the director of the Decolonizing Humanities Project. Since recording this episode, a family member of mine has passed away. He was a proud Ulsterman and lived a life full of love and solidarity, not least of all with the Palestinian people. He recognised the shared struggle between the peoples of Ireland and Palestine and their liberation was close to his heart. I'd like to dedicate this episode to him. Rest in peace, Bob. Over the last few years, as you've been writing this book, as you've been putting this book out into the world, there's been an intensification of Israel's crackdown on Palestinian life. Um, and recently to recording this, we've just seen the election of the most right-wing Israeli government, arguably in history. And I just thought we could start off by asking you kind of what you make of these recent developments and how it's framing the work that you're doing. Well, thank you again for having us. And, uh, you know, the, the question is good because Laura actually and I were just talking about this this morning about always having to root our work in the immediacy of the moment. And so with Palestine, I think there are two sets of immediacies. One is a larger structural one. And that is to understand that Palestine is a settler colonial situation. And the state now known as Israel whether it's under the most quote unquote liberal labor government or the most fascist government as they have now, there are 
a large amount of structural uh, pieces that never change. Zionism is there to occupy and colonize Palestine. And that involves the removal of the Palestinian people, the erasure of the Palestinian people historically and in terms of socially today. And that policies or those policies of erasure continue and are sustained, whether they're inside the state now known as Israel, the borders of which were established in 1948, or the occupied territories, which are internationally seen as occupied, whether it's East Jerusalem, West Bank, uh, we always forget the Golan, which is actually occupied, um, and of course, uh, Gaza. And also the fact that fundamental to the state of Israel is the fact that the, the Zionists, the Israelis, consider themselves natives, which is a fundamental gesture or you know process in colonization, where the colonizer comes to pose themselves as native. And of course, and that is a, 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 a part of the you know heart of the IHRA's definition now of anti-Semitism, that you can't even say that a colonizer from Europe is an is a is a colonizer, um, because that that might broach anti-Semitism. So there's these large pieces that are fixtures, regardless. So I think sometimes the discussion of this fascist regime or incoming fascist regime tends to lull us away from the fundamental facts that the state now known as Israel is a settler colonial state that is apartheid state, regardless of who's in charge. Mm -hmm. But specificity and immediacy is important. And the Zionist project only increases in alacrity with this fascist, incoming fascist government. So the, they take off what we can see as the safety locks of liberalism when it comes to things like the colonization of uh, the occupied uh, Palestinian territories, uh, you know, Jerusalem, and, for example, a real fear, a genuine fear that is not a fantastic fear, a genuine fear now is expulsion, mass, mass expulsion. Expulsion has been happening for the past 70 years incrementally, and it's happening today and for the past year. For example, what we see in Masafariyata, which is a small area in the West Bank of 19 hamlets, where just in the last week destroyed a school or ripped up the homes. Mm -hmm. This happens every day. Expulsions happen every day. We have to understand this. Silwan, people are being expelled from their homes every day. And when they're expelled from their homes, settlers move in. This happens every day. But the speed of which this expulsion is happening and the consolidated nature is something we need to actually attend to and be fearful of. And there are plans and there are discourses that specifically say things like, we need to re remove the Palestinians from even the occupied West, West Bank. We have to um, demand uh, loyalty tests and loyalty oaths for uh, Palestinians living in the state of Israel with uh, settler colonial citizenship. And if they don't, they will be expelled. In fact, there was just a, a case, the longstanding case that was finally adjudicated, Sami uh, Hamouri, I think his name is, who's a uh, French-Israeli citizen or uh, lives in Israel. Those are air quotes. Uh, uh, those are air quotes. <laughs> um, 
and who has who has now been expelled and has been expelled actually weirdly enough and ironically enough with a, actually a very anti-Semitic trope of dual loyalties that he had dual loyalties and that's mm-hmm. why he was expelled to France and that dual loyalties wasn't to France it was to the Palestinian people um, so I think this what we have to be fully attentive to and aware of is this fascist government is only there to accelerate full Zionist project of the colonization of Palestine, which involves the mass expulsion of the Palestinian people and their erasure. Mm-hmm. And I think this gets at like why Palestine. A lot of folks will ask us like of all the things to write about or all the things to be engaged in. I mean, p- apart from our political commitments as Lebanese Arabs and our responsibility to Palestine and the Pan-Arab liberation movement, why Palestine is precisely the reasons that Stephen is saying is because it's a living, breathing example, a daily example of settler colonialism. Uh, not to say that there aren't others that exist, right? State now known as Canada, the state now known as Australia, state now known as United States, uh, Northern Ireland and Cyprus, all these uh, Western Sahara active colonial projects. And yet there's something very specific about Palestine that's unfolding in real time in front of us with very specific psychic and emotional implications. And so for us, that situates Palestine right in the middle of this. And because it normalizes violence, state violence and settler colonial violence as a natural fixture. And there's something really insidious about that psychically when, you know, sort of the violence ratchets it up, it starts to become normalized in a very particular way. Right. And in fact, actually, the state has to continue ratcheting up because especially when you see liberation efforts in response to it. And that's what I also want to call into our into our midst is that the ratcheting violence is a central fixture of settler colonialism. So it's not a surprise. I think the surprise we sometimes feel like, how can this be happening when you attack when you attack a funeral? That's because you're a settler colonial state. And when people are showing their presence on mass. You have to do that as a part of a logics of settler colonialism. You must clamp down on life, right? So I do want to see, speak to that piece, is that as we see a fascist government come into being um, as a natural extension, again, of settler colonialism, it it's kind of feels like it's the only way, right? Uh, unless there's resistance to it, is that we also see an intifada happening right now in Palestine. There is mass resistance from over the course and over defying the settler colonial regime, right? Really resistance from the river to the sea. This is no longer just folks in the so-called West Bank or Gaza resisting occupation. This is Palestinian siblings across historic Palestine saying, this is an apartheid and settler colonial regime that has its hold on us all. And that's also part of what we are not getting this narrative. If you look at the media, of course, if you follow folks on the ground, you can see the intifada happening when you kill 10 men between the ages and and children between the ages of 10 and 25 within a three day period when Nablus is on lockdown, when the West Bank entirely is ratcheting up, when somebody is killed in Beit Lahem, in Bethlehem, there's also a for us to recognize. There's a righteous revolutionary fight for life, even as things are ratcheting up. And I think that for us is also courses through the book is how does Palestinian life and resistance and defiance take center piece? 
yeah, definitely. I want to come on to that focus as well, and as well the kind of focus on Palestinian clinicians and therapists as opposed to kind of colonizers. But um, first, I want to ask a question, and I kind of want to ask it in a delicate way because, um, as you're saying, there's this there's this kind of acceleration and uh, a, a kind of increasing like velocity to violence, and as you say, part of the project is that people outside of Palestine don't hear about a lot of it or it's not reported in plenty of places and kind of really depressingly you know you even speak to people who are you know support the struggle for a kind of liberated Palestine and, and even they struggle to hear about what's happening and so I kind of wanted to ask you about how everyday violence shapes the experiences of people accessing care in the book but then also how that everyday experience it's maybe changing at the minute with this increase in speed. And also the bit that I want to be careful about is, I think whenever we kind of talk about violence, thinking back to the kind of George Floyd uprisings, it's, I always want to be careful about how I invite that speculation about violence, because I don't want it to become a kind of, to put it crudely, a kind of pornographic sort of thing that so often it can kind of um, descend into. I don't think you guys will, obviously, but maybe you could speak a little bit about how we have to think about documenting and sharing those experiences as well. Yes, yeah. Well, I really appreciate the the thoughtfulness around it. And I think if anything, what being engaged in Palestine over the course of course of writing this book, but just in our, in our fight for liberation is that uh, people on the ground are very attentive to this. On the one hand, there's a necessity to highlight and contour what suffering actually looks like. And, and to always remember what is causing that suffering, right? Yeah. Which is what is missing from a lot of times from trauma models. This is our critique about, you know, sort of contemporary trauma models that you end up having a quote unquote victim without a victimizer. It's just like somehow something fell from the sky and traumatized. And it's like, no, it's settler colonialism. So there's something really important about documenting that because people are living that. So we were never in a position to say trauma doesn't happen. What we are in a position to say, following the lead of our colleagues and comrades, is can we always keep alive what is causing that trauma with the idea that if we keep that alive and if that is our target, it's, there's also not a helplessness and a hopelessness that comes with that. There's always a possibility of dismantling and disrupting and therefore alleviating the cause of suffering, right? So it actually works against this, what what you're very sensitively and sort of thoughtfully calling in is part of the dis disturbing nature of what is sometimes colloquially called in quotes, trauma porn, right? Subjecting people to this is that there also is never a uh, speaking to uh, what would need to be alleviated, right? There's just a sort of a recounting, a re-traumatizing through uh, inviting people in without any sort of analysis around the context in which this arises, right? Um, so that's the centerpiece of it. That's what we always want to center. And from that, we can, our our colleagues, as, as we document in the book, were very generous in letting us know what the daily impacts of mm -hmm. this is, whether that's people actually not having access to care because of a checkpoint. You know, we have examples of people standing for seven hours in line at the checkpoint, a checkpoint, by the way, within their own home, right, within their own land. So when we say checkpoint, sometimes we're also psychologically associating to like, oh, there's a checkpoint because somebody needs to be checked. But let's be clear, this is a point. This is a settler colonial checkpoint, 
which is arbitrary and a mode of disciplining people and disciplining bodies and movement. So that's that's a larger framework, which has direct impact into access to care, where clinics are, where they're allowed to be. Another big part of this is funding. There are uh, conditions around psychological healthcare funding, sometimes from NGOs that require clinicians to report any quote unquote political activity or terrorism. And the people who we've spoken with in the book actively resist that and end up getting funding from sources that don't require that conditionality to, as, as a precondition for health and care. Because, I mean, if we think about really the political implications of that, you're saying anybody engaged in resistance would potentially fall underneath that because you've already doc you've already basically set up the parameters of what quote unquote terrorism means, right? And and against whom and and all the sort of things that come into that. Another example another example that I know people a lot of people gravitate towards is the example of Cesar Hakim, mm-hmm. who speaks about uh, tear gas flowing into the room, literally in the space. Or our colleague and comrade Fatih Flefil, who says, you know, the occupation. Uh, structures all of us because that the the you know everything that my patient goes through they're speaking to my experience as well so there's all these very real immediate examples of how the occupation and settler colonialism in in general is directly implicated this isn't a stretch right this is daily life for people did you you want to add to that um You've pretty much covered a good amount, I would have to say. I think only to kind of simplify it even, to re- remember that, you know, Palestine is like any other place. And you want to, at one level, de-exclusivize, let's say, mental health, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in Palestine, where, you know, people have anxiety disorders and people have, you know, a lot of other disorders or or worries or just like any other place. And so, you know, we might be induced to think oh you know there's anxiety disorder for occupation right <laughs> you know you're being occupation right uh you're you know some sort of things like that you know uh everything goes back to occupation which at one level um we shouldn't do because palestine again lara and i always would say is like what's amazing is is that everyone in palestine should be nuts and that's a clinical term right <laughs> everybody should be bonkers like clinically bonkers because the situation there is so mad inducing it really is it's the system in which you live in palestine it's vertiginal it's 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 crazy it's 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 really backwards like it, it up is down and down is up when it, when you think about the kind of relationship the, the 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 life you have to leave because of occupation it's really really maddening in Literally to that word, but in the, in many in many respects, like you go to Palestine, you're like, oh, so you talk to a clinician, and you're like, so what do you see usually? And they say, no, pretty much, you know, sixty percent of what we see is pretty much what we see anywhere, whether it's in you know France or in you know Burundi, it's uh, anxiety disorders, alienation, loneliness, depression, you know, these sorts of things. So that's number one. It's just to understand that, like, you know, there are normal, let's say, quotidian baseline sort of anxieties and issues that people have. That saturate the country like and other place. But as Lara was describing, is that everything in Palestine is further complicated and elevated through this occupation. Mm-hmm. So 
this is not even to address the fact that there are traumatic and violent effects when people come in and bulldoze your home. Make you bulldoze it. Or make you bulldoze it or put you under siege or 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 every time as a male between you know 16 and 55 when you go through a checkpoint theoretically for some reason you could be detained that you know the, the the israeli occupation forces have you know a, a system of detention where they can they don't need it to, to charge you and they detain you for six months and then they re-up you on that detention that's called you know um mm-hmm. that's how many and it's something like you know, 50% of Palestinian males have been detained for a significant period of time in their life. So those themselves are the raw materials for obviously mm-hmm. issues that could be, you know, mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But apart from that, even if we're just thinking about the quotidian, right, there's a whole system on top of the same, let's say, you know, system, uh, the, the, the things that prevent a normal developing, quote unquote, developing nation access funding you know awareness all those things those are all for the complicated even if you have funding where does it come from how does it get there how do you actually get money to get money into occupied palestine is hard to actually get the money there you know given by mother Teresa. how do we get it there? right <laughs> everything that they face is complicated even further mm-hmm. um, i think that's an and that's a fixture of life mm-hmm. uh, for Palestinians. but then again i would also like to back into what Palestinian clinicians are doing and how they work within, I mean, they push, I don't want to say they accept the level, their their conditions of oppression. They don't. They are, they calculate the conditions in which they can work. They try to at part, quote unquote, do workarounds, unquote, um, but also push back in the process too. And in the process of building these way, these networks and these systems of care, they're also fighting against uh, occupation. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll come back to a lot of stuff that you both mentioned there. But I would like to ask you about the structure of the book and the way in which you went about the research, because you choose to focus on clinicians and you make a clear point that it's a book about therapists, analysts and clinicians working in Palestine. It's not a book about necessarily psychoanalyzing specific colonizers and people within the kind of Israeli state. Why did you make that decision and, and why is it so important to have that emphasis? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What a great question. Nobody has asked us that. <laughs> uh, a, a year of interviews. Nobody's asked. What a great uh, question. I, I would think partially to keep Palestine centered, mm. right? And keep Palestinians centered. Yeah. I think there's a there's a danger sometimes in even explaining the important moving pieces of oppression that the people whom you're trying to uplift their voices get lost. They disappear. And I I think there was a time and a moment where that was necessary and I think by the time we were making our real communal bonds with people on the ground that moment needed to be all about Palestine and Palestinians. And, and and that is really why this book is, you know, one of the things we're so proud of and touched by is how clearly our Palestinian colleagues' voices come through and how that really was a communal process. Like it was relationship building with them and in communication and negotiation of what does this look like, right? We really worked against extractive modes 
of knowledge and extractive modes of writing and research. And so even our focus emerged as we were in the struggle with them on the ground. But but the centerpiece is really both Stephen and I being like, how does Palestine stay centered? How do we not get seduced by settler colonial logics, the centerpiece of which is de- to decenter? So I think that was part of it. I think the decision not to focus also on patience was there's there's something on the one hand very um, inviting about that. Everybody loves to read about patients. And I don't want to, I'm a clinician. I know what it's like. And yet for those of us who are engaged, number one, in the struggle, but also understand perhaps the labor behind certain things that we didn't want the people doing the work actually to be erased as well. And it's their, it's their struggle. It's their journey that now has sort of, let's say, culminated in the Global Palestine Mental Health Network. Right, these networks of care they've created that became the force of the book, and and I and I think that's what across the board people have been really telling us that what comes off the pages is Palestine, is Palestinian clinicians, is real people working in and through settler colonialism and the occupation, um, even as they enact psychoanalysis, psychotherapeutic process, a decolonial approach, right? And then what we call the psychotherapeutic commons. So I think that's for me the the sort of ethos of it. Yeah, I think it's I mean it's you, you put your finger on it. I just I would, if I could I, you know back up and take the larger picture, which is number one, as Marxists, I think that it's just bad theory to you know psychoanalyze societies and cultures and this is what colonial uh, empires have done for ages so we also learned that and that is the site also you know we could very uh, easily have uh, uh, pathologized zionism just as zionism pathologizes resistance in palestine we could very have easily pathologized zionism as a you know psychotic um political for or psychotic social formation you know, and that comes out of, you know, the the suffering of, um, you know, the Jewish people from anti-Semitism and the Holocaust in Europe. We could have done all that. And people have. People way do that. They do that a lot. Way too much. Right. And I think it's a bad use of theory. And what happens is that it does decenter Palestine when we it's easy to sort of, again, to, to pathologize uh, Zionism. And doing that, we at one level we 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 miss the mark that Zionism is actually a political formation and a political you know it's a political uh, uh, phenomenon, and then also we in doing that we then as Lara says we decenter Palestinians, and at best what we can do that we try to recenter Palestinians around suffering porn as you said mm-hmm. right so we could talk about you know the psychotic effects of Zionism and then how it mutilates and debilitates. Palestinians, which a lot of good work has been done, and I'm not not throwing shade on people who do that, but I think that work has been done, and I think it also methodologically and theoretically, as a Marxist, it brings us away from material conditions. Mm -hmm. So how do we engage in material conditions? We can talk to the peasants, and we can talk to the workers, but we can also talk to those people who are attending to them and, and interacting with them and holding their stories, but also understanding the psychic effects and wages that those folks as Palestinians themselves are also 
living, right? So they're the kind of interlocutors mm-hmm. between a series of, uh, of material conditions that seem to be really at a perfect pressure point for us to sort of to engage, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perhaps a good thing to follow on there would be maybe a kind of consideration of like the institutional landscape, because as much as the clinicians you spoke to must do this every day, I imagine it must have been interesting for you in kind of structuring your research to maybe go through a similar process. For people that don't know, could you talk about what the landscape of kind of care looks like in Palestine and how different kind of institutional bodies, the state, NGOs, um, kind of structure how access to care what access to care looks like i know that's quite a big question but maybe kind of overview so people can get an idea so i we want to remember that you know again this is where the the idea of apartheid actually helps it's not just a you know an accusation it's actually an analytic that's actually quite um helpful to understand how uh the settler colony governs its colonized people and of course we know that Palestinians or the state now known as Israel has a three-tiered policy towards Palestinians. There are Palestinians who have citizenship, and it's really partial citizenship because they don't enjoy the full rights of all citizens of the state of Israel. Um, they are not allowed to do move into certain places, and they can't buy certain homes, and they are prohibited to do certain things, whether it's through strict, explicit legal codes or practice, social practice. And then there are um, those who live in occupied Jerusalem, who are the inhabitants of Jerusalem and have been for centuries, but of course don't have citizenship, but they have basically residency. So they effectively have what we would call here like a green card. So you have a green card in your own home. So you have sort of partial access to uh, state services and, and rights, but you're not a full citizen. And then you have folks living in the occupied territories, particularly what is now known as West Bank and Gaza, who have no rights at all. They live under a military, literally a military uh, military law. If you are arrested and you're a Palestinian and you don't you you don't have a residency card or and you don't have Israeli citizenship, then you are not covered by civilian law. You are covered by um, martial law. And that so we cannot talk about anything in access to anything Mm -hmm. in Palestine when we don't understand this three-tiered, this tripartite sort of tiering. And they can't go to other parts of Palestine. Yeah, it just restricts so much. So that makes sense. So when you have, for example, there are state, you know, as an Israeli citizen, you have access to certain uh, state services. So many of the Palestinian clinicians that we dealt with and who are our friends, whether it's inside the official borders of 1948 or occupied uh, Jerusalem, you know, they work in, in places like Kalalit, which is basically uh, an Israeli healthcare system. Uh, they, they have, I think they have three or four major healthcare systems and Kalalit is one of the biggest ones. So if you were you were a Palestinian, you could go through that to seek mental health care. And then in the uh, the West Bank, it's different. You have community uh, healthcare instances or centers. You have Tons of NGOs, and this is the thing. And we don't deal with NGOs. We really don't. I mean, we've talked to a few particular men, uh, uh, um, doctors without borders in Nablus. There are mental health. There is mental health care, 
done through uh, international organizations. We did not engage with them that much, even though we spoke to Palestinians who did work in there, but we really don't engage in that. But there are these sort of uh, places in Bethlehem, in Ramallah, in Nablus, in the uh, in uh, occupied Jerusalem that are created by Palestinians to service the Palestinian community there and really circumvent either the lack of access completely or to circumvent the, the Israeli hegemony. And then finally, there are um, there's a Palestinian Authority um, healthcare system, which Samah Hajaba, Dr. Samah Hajaba is the head of, uh, and they have a number of uh, centers throughout uh, Palestine, which are incredibly underfunded, uh, very much on the medical model, mm-hmm. um, not very therapeutic in, uh, in their approach. And that's as much uh, the case in any place in the world at this point, right. uh, but also funding. Right. So. That's a that's a boring nuts. That's nuts and bolts. If if it's okay, I just want to sort of um, put a little more texture. That 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 sort of the, that's the structure. And I always rely on him. But he's the best at those things. Thank you <laughs> <laughs> for that. Um, to give a little bit of texture about how the settler settler colonial violence is weaved through these processes. I mean, it's obvious when you give like a, a right at a, a sort of larger framework where you're like, oh, wait a second, someone in Bethlehem can't go to Jerusalem, right, to get care. If their clinic there is, even though it's like technically 10 minutes away, right, that if their neighborhood clinic is full, it's not like you can just go to the next town over. That is that is sort of governed by these IDs. So of course, in the context of the United States, you can sort of think about Jim Crow, apartheid in South Africa. When we talk to our comrades, they're like, this is apartheid a thousand times over. So that's obvious. But even within the state now known as Israel, the Klelit, for example, mm-hmm. not only is there a dearth of Palestinian clinicians within those systems. So if you are Palestinian looking for care within those systems, you might not get paired with a Palestinian clinician or have access to Arabic clinical services. Even when you do, as a uh, clinician under settler colonial rule, you have been trained within settler colonial schools, mm-hmm. which means the Palestinian narrative is entirely written out of that, yeah. right? It means that your super supervisor is an Israeli citizen and settler. There are some that are, let's say, kind colonial settlers. and But by and large, we have heard horror stories about how entire denial of existence of Palestine and Palestinian life. And and one example we have of like a supervisor telling a clinician that like camps don't exist. Like, what do you mean? You look out the window. These people have like large homes when they're talking about camps, right? So like the delusion that's involved in that. It also includes, even if you're doing clinical work in Arabic, you are translating to your supervisors in Hebrew and then back translating your exams to get licensed are in Hebrew. They are done by a entirely Israeli, uh, Jewish Israeli panel. And so you can start, even as I sort of just sketch that out, we can start to anticipate some of the inbuilt second tier or third tier, as Stephen was saying, aspects of this. Like even when it's quote unquote, has a system and that looks democratic, there are serious problems and flaws that are constitutive of it because it's part of a settler colonial regime. Yeah, I forget the details, but it brings to mind a story you tell in the book of a clinician going to their supervisor's house 
and I, and it was a house that had been um, stolen essentially from a, a Palestinian family by a, uh, an Israeli settler and yeah that really stuck out to me as just like a, a really barbaric example of like a so-called normal situation just yeah. totally skewed in this sort of nightmare way um, yes yes what a great ex- thank you for saying that I, I, I want to flesh that out a little bit more yeah please do um so these are you know all of us who are clinicians have to keep up with our clinical practice right we have continuing education we have supervision that example is from one of these things where clinicians are going to get training Mm -hmm. and that training happens in a stolen home Mm -hmm. and the palestinian clinicians know the history of that home they know the families Across the street is Edward Said's home mm-hmm. that was also stolen. Mm-hmm. They they're looked at like they're like, what the hell what the hell are you doing when they're eating the the fruit off the tree? And our clinician come, this is part of to back to your question of like how do they navigate this? For them, there's no step. They're like, the, these these trees belong to us. We're indigenous to this land. This is not weird for us to pick the, you know, the fruit because this is what you do. Another example of that is when a, an, a required mandatory training to continue your licensing was held in a settlement, mm-hmm. right? Which even if you're t- talking the language of international law is illegal. It's an illegal settlement. We think, of course, it, it goes right in the occupied West Bank. And so the uh, Global Palestine Mental Health Network wrote a letter being like, the, the ask of us to maintain our license, to come to an illegal settlement, because this is where you choose to hold this, is not only normalization, but it's also an active way that you enact violence on people. Yeah, I think what stuck out about it to me was, I suppose it's training and not quite the same as kind of going into a therapeutic session, but it's these kind of situations that are supposed to hold you in quite vulnerable experiences, just being kind of totally embedded in something you know totally violent and I think very often maybe in a kind of anglophone context when we think of the therapeutic encounter and we think about politics we maybe think about going outside of the therapy therapeutic encounter to go and talk about politics to go and find politics but obviously in so many of the instances of in your book um going back to that example you spoke about about tear gas and smoke kind of literally entering the room which is really funny because that's such a kind of common phrase that people talk about, you know, things entering the room and that's such a kind of literalization of that. It totally flips down. It's like, actually, we're not going outside of this encounter to bring politics in. You know, it's it's here whether we want it to be or not. And so I guess to follow on from that, the question I want to ask is how clinicians think about the therapeutic encounter or the frame and how they can contend with that reasonably with all these things happening, you know, like people being held at checkpoints and just not being able to make their appointment, which Mm -hmm. is such a, in some kind of schools of psychoanalysis is such a kind of sacrosanct thing of, you know, you turn up at this time every week for this hour and then you leave and it's kind of supposedly, you know, an immovable um, parameter of what psychoanalysis is and can do. How, how do clinicians kind of work with that? How, how did you find that they were, kind of transforming that idea in response to it being shattered or sort of challenged, I suppose. I'm going to let Laura address the more granular elements of how how things look within the clinical space. But I just want to 
tie that question that you just asked, which is a fantastic one, which also your observation in the sort of Caesarian way of, you know, settler colonialism is savage and barbaric, right? To think though that every, we, we tend to think that, you know, this training held in an occupied Palestinian home, or this one is going to go to the, you know, Ariel settlement in the West Bank. It's important for us to acknowledge something very, very fundamental. That is, these are not exceptions. These are conditions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These are conditions. When you walk in Palestine, you are walking through occupied land. What a coincidence all these homes predate these beautiful homes that are turned into cafes and clubs and homes, as well as mosques too, which are turned into restaurants and such, are all pre-48 and not built by Zionist settlers. This is a condition. And what we wanted to understand always, like Marx tells us about capitalism, is settler colonialism is also a social relation. It's not a thing. So settler colonialism is not a thing. It's a set of social relations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So whether you are in that home or not in that home, whether you are inside 48 or outside 48, whether you're at the checkpoint or at the supermarket, or in the clinical or supervisory space, your social relations are being constituted by settler colonialism. One of the reasons why you ask why Palestinian clinicians is it's one of those places where your relationship is still mediated through settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. It is mm -hmm. just like our relationship right now as comrades, no matter what, is still mediated through capitalism, despite our opposition to it. Yeah. I'm making the assumption that your opposition is too capital. <laughs> yeah, you, you assume Red. correctly. <laughs> Red <of> medicine. <laughs> so, but and it's but it's in that space too that you create an oppositional yeah. space of life and resistance. And I mean resistance in the sense of revolutionary resistance. And I think, and then I'll let Laura speak to actually yeah. those issues that again to get to to get to the door to enter into the room, and then when you're in the room too. All of this has all these conditions have been have been primed and created and structured and already effect of social of the, of the relations, the social relations constructed by uh, by settler colonialism. Yeah, I, I love working with him because he sets it up for me so well. <laughs> segue <laughs> to your question about the frame. It's because it's it, because that is also a social relation, but it's never talked about that way. Right. Because to your point, your question about the frame comes with it with the sort of dogmatic use of the frame where it becomes shorthand for a patient's commitment to therapy, patient's pathology or not, right? So coming late becomes always an invitation to read resistance, small r, not capital R resistance, right? With, with, with very little uh, generosity or expansiveness to read that as potentially a needed resistance, like capital R resistance, right? Again, time against what would I need to communicate in this to you that those aren't even available which is always suspicious to me when there is one mode of analysis that is a clue to us that there's ideology suffused into that right and that the frame is a shorthand for that it also is a shorthand for health around like executive functioning planning are you able to like I hear this so often as somebody who's 
who trains students, who works in the field as an educator and a psychoanalytic one, where people very casually are like, well, people should be able to plan to get here on time, regardless of all like, yeah, you need to take all these buses, then you need to be able to plan to do that. And what's not only are there ableist notions written into that, that maybe somebody is also in therapy to help alleviate some of that. There's like no attention to that. There's such a lack of compassion that comes with that. But there also are, it's sort of like telling on ourselves as a field about what we constitute as health. Somebody's ability to make it to your session becomes representative of their health and wellness. That is why I mean is that the segue to this is the social condition is always divorced from the context and what might materially get in the way of people accessing care and being able to engage, let alone, by the way, that there's engagement happening, whether or not somebody shows up in your space at the right time, right? I'm not even going to get into that, (laughs) get on my soapbox for that one. But I think we can think about what Palestinian clinicians are doing and what they've gifted us in this book is a really speaking to how the concept of the frame when it is spoken about in the way that you introduced, which is by and large an accepted way of talking about it when we're talking about psychoanalysis as a practice, is a colonial formation. It's one that hinges on a constitutive split between clinic and street Mm. that keeps the outside world at bay and peddles the idea that when we close that door, that clinic space, our space is fundamentally safe and free of the sociopolitical world. I call it a setup because that's like, the the clinic site is a site of harm when you disavow that the world exists. Mm -hmm. But it also asks people to excise parts of themselves, these social relations, the context in which they live, capitalism, gender, uh, you know, sexuality, ability. Ask that, you ask people to excise that because those are what constitutes the political world. It's not electoral politics we're talking about, which again, I'm fascinated when people are like, well, I can't, <laughs> I said this in my class yesterday. I don't want to tell people who to vote for. I'm like, I'm not talking about that when I talk about politics, <laughs> you know? We're talking about these social and political relations that constitute somebody's being existence and whether or not they are allowed to exist in space without the pressures of navigating those space under constant pressures of oppression. When we think about it like that, the concept of the frame in the way it's used is an absurd concept. And that is what Palestine teaches us. It's like, like you said, I could just want to, maybe I'm really invested in this frame, in this very old school way of thinking about the frame. And then the gas comes in. Mm. Well, then what do we do then? Mm. Right? Are we like, let's pause the session and wait for the gas to calm down. And then we'll pick back up. You know, I say that and it sounds absurd, but the ways we talk about it, actually, that's the implication. There's already a technical problem we have with that. So if the frame is a colonial import in as much as it timestamps what belongs in the room and what doesn't, And of course, that always falls along fault lines that are already exist around gender, class, race, right, ability, fault lines that 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 might govern people's lives. Then refusing that split is a decolonial push. It's a push to say our clinical space, as much as their everyday lives, is vibrant 
here and elsewhere. And it also tells us that therapeutic work doesn't just happen within the confines of this space. It's a promise for what does it mean to enact this process, this process being psychoanalytic process in everyday life and vice versa. And, and it also takes it out from the responsibility of the patient alone. It's a commitment from the therapist as well to say, this is what decolonial works looks like. Every way I am, whether I'm in my room, like you were saying, whether I'm in my clinic space or not, I'm committed to disrupting settler colonial logics because settler colonial logics are what cause harm to people. In that way, it's very Fanonian, right? It's like, and it's inextricable. Clinic and street are inexplicable from each other. Stay, staying with kind of upsetting that sort of binary distinction as well, maybe it would be good to talk about the patient uh, the clinician patient uh, therapist client relationship because that's another kind of maybe sort of previously assumed relationship that um, you know maybe doesn't hold up the same way in the context of Palestine I mean how were your colleagues thinking about that relationship how were they unsettling that relationship and how did sort of occupation force them to kind of think differently about psychoanalysis and that traditional idea of that relationship I think what's really important is we want to stress the importance of Palestinian work with Palestinians, not out of an empty identity politics, even though we want to always be sensitive to the power and relevance of identity politics when all of our worlds globally are structured by racial capitalism, mm -hmm. right? Leftists too easily go after identity politics. And, if, and I think in equally facile ways as identity politics can be used, you know, the, the, the left can also go after them in, in, in inappropriate ways. And it's like, just don't go after black and brown people, chill out for a second. So I just want to put that out there, but also think about the, why we stress it is not out of this side of identity, you know, empty identity politics or sort of nationalist agenda per se, but because as subjects of colonialism, there's a knowability that they share, right? Mm -hmm. There's there are those these social conditions that we talked about, these social, these settler colonial relations that they talk about. There's an, an intimacy that they share with one another. When they say something, when the patient says something, it will be understood. Mm -hmm. Is understood is what is being said. Mm -hmm. I also, however, want to also undermine the. The, the monochrome nature of our imagination when we think Palestinian clinician and, and Palestinian patient, because the Palestinian clinician is themselves diverse. So they come from different parts of Palestine. They, they have different religions. They have different classes. And sometimes the knowability between Palestinians, it can be disrupted or obfuscated, but also enhanced by this difference. So for example, if you're from another area, maybe I might feel more comfortable speaking to you, yeah. Dr. Sam, because you're from the North and I'm from the South. Mm. You don't know anybody in my family because everybody in my family knows each other and it's the whole village, the half of the town and the whole neighborhood who knows our other's business. So there's an element that I can speak freely. Maybe if you're not from my religion, I don't have to be embarrassed about my discomfort with certain gender 
prescriptions mm -hmm. or or sexual or prescription of sexuality, mm -hmm. right? So within that within that knowability, while there's a familiarity with the clinician and the patient, and they share in and their relationship is structured by, in many ways, a shared positionality vis-a-vis -vis colonialism. there's also the internal relationship within Palestinian community that also is a dynamic yeah that helps and it can sometimes it can obfuscate by the way sometimes you know it won't it's a it, it works opposite but that's like everywhere right yeah um, but I just want to also sort of give color give some uh, some nuance also to that relationship rather than we thinking about like you know the uber the uber monochrome super you know Palestinian clinician who can themselves jet and and parachute into any any point in historic Palestine. Right. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if that helps. No, it does. And I think it does justice to the work that they're doing because they're working simultaneously on a multiplicity of layers, right? Which I think sometimes we task what, what you're saying really helps me think about and want to articulate that we sometimes task folks who are oppressed with being superhuman in their struggle. And I think that's a, a violence that's done. I understand where that comes from, because when, when you're under attack constantly, it, there is something to be said about feeling like you're unified and not wanting to air, you know, the basics of what any community would have. And I've, I've seen that so, so amplified in the context of Palestine, like not allowing people for lack of a better word, and I don't mean this in a liberal way, but like to their humanness um, and it, rather than tasking them with like their superhuman revolutionary fighters constantly, whether it's the clinicians or, or people. I think there's something specific about the ongoingness of the settler colonial regime that allows them to connect, like you're saying, because the conditions of alleviating suffering are foreclosed upon, but not their like ex material manifestations of human condition or experience on a daily basis. The way that I think clinicians that well, how I what I've learned from folks on the ground, and I, and I think about particularly our comrade and colleague Renan Shashibi, who calls clinicians who calls clinicians to be al maalij al mushtabak, right or al mushtabik, basically saying you must be a politically engaged clinician. And that is like a, an, an actual framework and let's say adjective that she gives, like to, to be a clinician means you must be politically engaged. And I th that is, I think, where the pulse of clinical work is going. I think Palestinian clinicians are showing us the way, just like Folks under oppression always show us the way because that is the urgency of their call. The urgency of call to clinicians the world over to say, join us in this struggle. Your, your voice belongs in the struggle. We need to lock arms up with you because for us to really take seriously the commitment to psychic well-being means we can't divorce liberation struggles from that. And she's speaking, of course, from her own position as a Palestinian and the head of the Palestinian Counseling Center, Palestine Counseling Center, which has uh, various um, clinics around Palestine, but also just from her position as, as a revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, 
I want to ask you one more thing before we switch to maybe a different aspect of the discussion about the role of uh, psychotherapy and analysis in struggle. Yeah, so another kind of part of the book that really stuck with me and kind of think encapsulates so much what you're talking about and maybe uh, illuminates another aspect of the therapeutic encounter is, I want to get the quote right, or you know, close enough, um, is the story of um, Samar when you write that the challenge of the clinician in Palestine is to decipher if the wall is a stand-in for her marriage or the marriage is a stand-in for the wall. Could you briefly give some context to that story and kind of what, what I'm referring to in quoting you there and then why you feel like that specific question encapsulates so much of the the task at hand for clinicians in Palestine. Right. Thanks for zooming in on that that story, which I think is really great. And a lot of people um, gravitate to her, I think, because she is emblematic of the sort of configuration that we're trying to get at. And this is kind of what I was saying before. Palestine, you know, people just have anxiety, right? People have depression, people have everything like they have, you know, they have psychosomatic, you know, disorders, they, you know, just like everybody else. Also, Palestine, Palestinian women live under patriarchy. That is not exclusive to Palestine, you know? Patriarchy is, is rules this, you know, filthy, cis, heteronormative capitalist system in which we live globally, right? <laughs> so our question is, of course, is how do we, this was our initial question, which is why that anecdote is in the beginning of this book, because like, how do we attend to genuine issues, for example, of Palestinian women who have to deal with patriarchy, who have to deal with gender-based violence, who have to deal with prescripts that may or may not control their movement, their desires, right, their selfhoods, but also not exclusifies them to the point that says somehow Arab men are that much more violent or that much more, you know, misogynistic. Mm -hmm. So we want to recognize that full selfhood of, 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 for example, Palestinian women. But then again, all of that is also living within the context of settler colonialism, mm -hmm. right? So her, what brought her into Cesar's office is not, that there's not a through line, direct through line between you know, occupation and why I'm here. Right? There's a lot going on there, right? I mean, she actually has a very loving husband who she just can't connect to, right? <laughs> you know, the the anxiety from men come more from her brothers, you know, than her than her husband. And how does she attach to her own desire? And then she, and the, in, a, in a true psychoanalytic sense, we can also then think about what's happening in her internal world and how she's kind of got there. And when was a time that she felt maybe fuller that could also be cast in a temporal frame of, psycho, you know, settler colonialism comes in at a particular time when she herself becomes, let's say, a sexualized subject, <laughs> right? And they start to work in concert with one another, <laughs> right? One is not necessarily determinative of the other. But that's what social conditions do. Mm -hmm. And I think this is actually something that's very helpful that actually psychoanalysis, for all that it, it has problems, psychoanalysis as a theory allows us in the hands of Marxists in particular to understand material conditions and how they become interwoven and interpolated in the 
right right um so this is where i think this is where we start off and you can yeah no exactly and those interjects right that they become interjects of in and of themselves but what i love about this case as well is it's an invitation to clinicians Mm -hmm. right it's an invitation to clinicians in as much as what i often hear as a clinician is a fear or anxiety about like well if we commit ourselves to a structural analysis we're going to lose the ability to interpret or something like that now we you we can joke about like okay what are you like you're more invested in your ability to interpret than liberation. That snark aside, <laughs> what this case gives us is a beautiful example of how one constantly commutes between the structural and the individual. And that how this process is not reductionistic, it's dialectic, it's dynamic, right? And it and actually the importance of it is the meaning making that emerges if we're thinking decolonially, that the knowledge production happens between patient and therapist within that larger context and then within the context of the therapeutic process itself. That Cesar was a cis male himself, was a centerpiece of this work. What does it mean to be engaged in speaking to these issues and being held in that way? You use the word held, right? Um, And being vulnerable and not being shamed in recognizing that cis-heteropatriarchy and settler colonialism work together so that the sort of unpacking of those become harder because Zionism is very happy to work in concert with patriarchy. Of course, disavowing its own patriarchy and putting it within Palestinian men. We see this with white feminists too, because that is what they will gravitate towards. And in gravitating towards that, you're also missing the fullness of the human that's there. It's not like her desires are snuffed out. She's a fully formed woman with an interiority. That's also what we wanted to focus on because so often we see this prescription of colonial peoples, of black, indigenous, and brown peoples, a shorthand of like, well, they would just benefit from CBT because their interiority is like not full enough or wow, they're just under so much pressure from settler colonialism. They can't possibly have the time to think about these things. Right. And it's like, I wish I were joking, but it's so true. And so I think this case animates like, no, this there is a dynamic constantly. And it's that person's work with the therapist and with psychoanalysis and with their world to make sense of that and and to to allow us to be together as the the being emerges as the process emerges as the working through happens without foreclosing on that i just want to add something to you what you said is and and the quote that you mentioned is that it allows us to be able to occupy or to understand how people occupy multiple conditions and worlds at the same time it is the father and the or the brothers and then you know is the stand-in for the, the wall and the wall is the stand-in for they, those are both true so it, it mm-hmm. yes settler colonialism is at play here but so is patriarchy and these things can happen at the same time and work in, in particular ways at the intersection and so someone is the intersection where those two things happen yeah and that though that intersection might be someplace else with her neighbor mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah at, at a different at a different scale and intensity of relationship, right? And that, and that's where I think the work of someone like Cesar is great because you can 
it's precisely building. I mean, for all people who always say about the individuality, the individual, individual in, in psychoanalysis, and we're saying people are people are social and communal su subjects. That it's the, in, the individuality is that is that intersection between those conditions that is constantly changing in terms of scale and intensity. Right. If that makes that's not too intellectualized. No, that's yeah, that does make sense, I and mean, it's a really nice way to think about it. I think it would be good now to maybe pivot onto a slightly kind of different. I suppose maybe we could think for a little bit about the the role of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis in struggle kind of as you were saying there psychoanalysis as this especially in the hands of marxists a, a really helpful tool and not one to kind of be thrown away sort of out of hand and i suppose a good a good place to start would maybe to ask you how the clinicians you work with saw their role as kind of political agents how, how did they balance we're talking there about the i guess what we might think was the kind of personal political how did they balance their responsibility as revolutionary therapists, et cetera? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Again, you know, I, I, I wish we could say that we visited Palestine and stumbled across this revolutionary cadre of, you know, of Maoist, Leninist, you know, anarcho-Marxist, you know, uh, analysts who were really working for the for the for the Mokawam or for the resistance. Um, I think though we did something better, and I think it's actually more promising than that, which is what you see is these clinicians really, the ones that we focus on, um, are all committed with they what they have in common is that they're all committed to the liberation of Palestine. They are all, if we can say in the classical sense, they are all committed to the national project. Mm -hmm. Of liberation for the of the Palestinian people, which recognizes not only political sovereignty and political, um, you know, sort of political rights, but also the cult, the center of culture, and in the movement. So among them, there are writers and you know poets and whatever. But also, I think what's important is for us to see how you can have actually multiple political positions. Some, I wouldn't say any are straight out what we can call disparagingly, because I don't think you can use this word in any way, but it's, it's disparaging with liberals. Um, I don't, um, but you know, not all of them are explicitly like revolutionaries. There are some who are. Yeah. By the way, it's very important that we, we, we're very aware of making anonymous a lot of the folks who, mm -hmm. their names, who say more revolutionary things because they are under, um, it's dangerous, they're under threat. So there are some people who are avowed Marxist, communist, leftist, but I think what they show us is that there are multiple forms of practice, praxis and practice that all, all work for revolutionary ends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and what's remarkable about them, and I've learned so much, is that they are constantly in a process of self-critique, of, of 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 debate, of uncertainty themselves, of talking things out. They're kind to one another and listen to one another. There are also a number of people who would I would say are are liberals. When we talk about one in particular who has a real quandary. I mean, I don't think, and I, you know, they're not my favorite person. I'm going to be, but I think what we do well is reflect the, the crisis that they have and the position that they have. And I think they turn a particular way in dealing with 
the Sadaqon regime in ways that I would not, but I can understand why they answer to that form of conscription, mm -hmm. right? So there are a lot, you know, these are not necessarily folks that are, you know, they're not, they're, clinicians are more than just this. So there are liberal clinicians, there are people who collaborate and that, and they can do it for a number of different reasons, for, some for monetary gain, with some because they actually think that they're benefiting the Palestinian community inside Israel, for example. The people that we focus on, I think, despite their political position, all share a revolutionary, liberatory vision and motivation of what their practice is. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, yes, and a commitment to their people. Mm -hmm. The commitment, the responsibility that they espouse with the power that they're vested, right? That they, that they have vested in them as clinicians, as cultural producers, as people who could potentially either uplift a particular social order or disrupt it. That is that I, I I laugh because I wrote autocritique. This is center for I think in some ways living and being trained in in the context of North America, uh, I forget sometimes, and then I'm delighted the second I step back into the global South how everything is political. Like you're you're in a taxi cab and people are laying down a political analysis, and I'm like, <laughs> this is the shit. This is what I want, right? So there's no confusion. That's the piece, I think, also to like, how do you, this, this, the split between the self and the political on some level, there's no confusion about the centrality of the political in this because everything they navigate is political. The conditions are political. Their limitations are political. The compromises, the false choices, the impossible decisions, the negotiations, which has a very particular resonance when you're talking about Palestine, the word negotiations, right? All of Exactly. All of that is political. So there's never a disavowal. And I think there's something so refreshing about being among people, despite their daily decisions around the revolutionary politics, that there's no disavowal to what it means to be engaged, what it means to be political, what it means to, what Nadir Sharhub Kavarkan would say, keep speaking Palestine, living Palestine, enacting Palestine. To that end, I think there's also ongoing education about that. And one of the things that we've been so lucky to see and they've shared with us in the, our ongoing community building with them is how they've increasingly divested from even good Israeli interventions around training. And I think that is a reclaiming of knowledge, of indigenous knowledge production, of confidence in oneself, of resisting atomization and saying everything we need, we actually already have. It, the, the logistics of that might look a particular way and we might have to be intentional about that. How do we always keep Gaza involved when we know that Gaza is untouchable to most people? So the most Moving example I can give is the launch of the Palestine Global Mental Health Network, which happened in June 2019, and we were invited to that. We talk about this in the book. Um, we were invited before Zoom World, before the pandemic changed everything into Zoom World. And it was so touching because, because of where the computer was, we were on the podium. So we saw everybody from the perspective of the podium, of like their face as they were presenting. And their colleagues in Gaza were beaming in on Zoom, and there was about 50 people over there. And at one point, the electricity in Gaza went out. So they paused the entire thing, called somebody in Gaza, one of their colleagues, and did the people's microphone organically to make sure that their 
colleagues in Gaza did not miss out on this aspect. And that's what the defiance of atomization looks like. Another way they do that is through international solidarity movements. And so over the past several years, we've really seen a pressure by clinicians in Palestine put onto clinicians the world over saying, we need your solidarity. Not only in uh, BDS calls of not going to conferences that want to be held in the apartheid state, but also in your commitment, your humanistic commitment of what it means to be a psychologist or a clinician or, or a social worker. Uh, so we've really seen, I, I think those are the real concrete examples. But also support the BS. Yes, of course. <laughs> One of many things. A centerpiece. Yes. We've got divestment sanctions, folks. <laughs> it's nice that you used the phrase refreshing there because just as you were speaking, that was actually the word that was on my mind because I, I you know, reading the book, it did feel very refreshing because the, I think I got to a point where, I don't know, the, sometimes it can feel like there is a kind of incommensurability about the political and the, the psychic. And I think depending on where you read and how you read about it, it can feel, it can feel really difficult. And in a way it is very difficult, but then what was enjoyable about the book was, oh, it is really difficult, but you can still do it, <laughs> you know, like, and all these people are doing it. And I, and I really enjoyed that. Um, I also enjoyed the sense that therapy uh, analysis, they're not individualist or kind of, I guess, dyadic kind of two people in a room they're not just that it's also this kind of collective endeavor internationalist endeavor how do the your colleagues kind of think about the ongoing collective project of what they're doing is there a I mean I know you're saying that there's not necessarily kind of ideological consistency that we might think would be very exciting but how how, how consistent are they in thinking about that collective um, project of what they're involved in Wow, that's, I mean, well, there's a lot to say on that one, I think. I just want to, again, foreground something else. Like, all these clinicians that we uh, have spoken with and who are our friends, I would consider them our friends and comrades. And this may be off topic, but I just it's important for us to say, which is they're incredibly well-trained and smart clinicians and whether they're trained within settler colonial institutions or Palestinian institutions or abroad they're very very so again this is also just for us to remember thinking about you know I guess this is kind of like they they all share psycho psychology really some sort of form of psychology as a place that brings them together so I want to don't want like psychology and psychoanalysis to kind of get lost I don't think they were all identify themselves as psychoanalytic but there are no actual psychoanalysts and i would think that modality of therapy brings them all together hmm. so that's one way to think about like psychoanalysis and psychology gives them some sort of collective identity so that's number one and number two is in terms of collective nature i think you know we especially in the early parts of our project we went because we are, we have citizens, imperial citizenship from imperial powers, United States. We have access in ways that many Palestinians don't have to all of Palestine. And you got a sense also of how Palestinians feel disaggregated, siloed off and cut off from one another, because that is actually the intent of settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. We know that. Fanon tells us that. Right, it is the intent is to isolate, right? 
But as we were going around, I mean, the way we met people was also word, word of mouth. I, you know, we kind of show up, say, yo, hey, this is what we're doing. That's really what's going on. Who do you think we should talk to? And they're like, hey, have you spoken to so-and-so? I'm like, no. And we go and show up and that. So it's really sort of, you know, it's the, you know, it's the word of mouth. What's it called? It's also vouching. It's about <laughs> vouching too. And it's like, what do they call it? Snowball, snowball surveys or whatever the hell they call it in like sociology, something ridiculously perverted like that, you know? <laughs> not king shaming, not king shaming, just saying sociology. Get yourself up. Exactly. <laughs> um, but as we started to go around, we also, I think people started to realize that they weren't as disaggregated as they think. It's not like we went in there and like opened up all the windows and said, you know, join hands, people. You know, <laughs> it was there, it was there references let's just say yeah ended up plotting a chart mm. that actually when you got that chart and put it on palestine you go oh this is palestine mm. there are relations between these people mm-hmm. and it's that mm-hmm. that that realization i think that comes to fruition in what it then becomes the global mental health network the palestine global health mental health network again i'm not saying that somehow we're responsible for that or something i think uh, but you can see that's where our fourth chapter comes from it it came to us as a realization that while people felt siloed off you could see how they were connected you could see that the more they spoke to one another and became cognizant of the conversations that they were already having with someone Someone, if you're from Nazareth and someone in Bethlehem or whatever, they became cognizant of, oh, this is not just a relationship that I have as a referential relationship. It's actually mm-hmm. a national mm-hmm. project that we have that we're already doing. Mm-hmm. And that comes and that comes to embodied in the, in the Palestinian Global Health Network, which we call the Palestinian, uh, you know, psychoanalytic commons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a centerpiece of the, I suppose, like the precondition, as J.J. Mall called it, is sumud. Mm-hmm. It's not, right, it's stalwartness. That that's, if if there's a, also another collective project, mm-hmm. apart from the liberation of Palestine, it's sumud, it's stalwartness, and stalwartness can take many forms. A psychotherapeutic practice is one way in which they do that. Mm-hmm. They enact sumud, mm-hmm. a, a refusal to be disappeared, a refusal to be displaced further, a refusal to be annihilated psychically, right? And I think clinicians join their patients in uh, enacting and creating new methods of resisting erasure mm. Could through you just, the clinical process. Yeah. Could you just quickly explain Samud and that phrase and just the, a bit, the context for people that might not have heard it before? Sure. So Sumud just, there's not really a great direct translation, but stalwartness, right? Like, so the image I get is like being fully present and unmovable in your presence, right? It's a political formation. Uh, We hear a lot about Sumud through incarcerated political prisoners. Uh, What does it mean to remain connected, present, active, despite pressures of oppression that might defy the logics of what we understand, like how do people survive despite that? Um, Samud is also enacted not just in a geopolitical location of Palestine, but through in people who have been displaced in diaspora, in exile. Um, there's so it's a larger formation, and I think there's it's it's not a position to sort of arrive at, 
but it is a constant praxis. Exactly. Do you add anything else to Samud? No, I think it's, I mean, it's it's important to know that the, the term has been around since the disposition of the Palestinian people. And, and, and then when, you know, I think the militant movement uh, really emerges in the late 60s, Samud is a political practice, a praxis is seen as a political praxis. It's not like a philosophy or like, right. what's Samud 101? You know, like, um, it's a praxis to not, to, to remain committed to the material realities of Palestine. Yeah. To not move. To not bend. It's a politics of refusal. It's a politics of resistance. It's a politics of affirmation. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's always contextual too. So you affirm who you are by dancing your dubki, or you you also affirm who you are by rejecting collaboration. Um, or being in therapy with a clinician who also enacts that. Exactly. <laughs> okay, this will be one of the final things I ask you about because you've been so generous with your time. I just wanted to ask you about this. Um, balance between internationalist kind of solidarity and I guess building forms of knowledge that we can share across different struggles combined with balancing that against I suppose the importance of specificity I mean they're kind of talking about language that is specific to the context of Palestine and a kind of indigenous knowledge um, both in your work and in the work of your colleagues how did you think about balancing those two things I think they sh- they showed us the way, as I was saying, but I want to talk um, sort of structurally and theoretically about that as well. That translates into praxis. If we're to follow a sort of decolonial and phenonian approach to this, which we do steep our uh, you know book in, let's say, theories of the global south, phenon is a central piece of that. There's also particular logics of settler colonialism that repeats itself The specificities of that are different depending on space and time, which is why Palestine is really important right now, because we are seeing whether it's an acceleration or a sort of uh, what are the how does technology change the way that it might look materially, the internal logics remain the same. Right. So in when in black skin, white mask, when Fanon tells us he's surprised when people ask him, you know, what place is more racist? He's like, what a ridiculous question. Racism is racism is racism. However, there is a specificity of what that racism looks like and means in Madagascar versus what it looks like and means in Algeria. Yeah, because the actors are different. This context is different. But what he alerts us to is a logic that repeats itself. So I suppose to us, if we can keep in focus, a logics that transcends geographic location that we might call settler colonialism. The solidarity is inbuilt in there. Mm -hmm. From Palestine to Mexico, all the walls have got to go, right? From Kashmir to Turtle Island, right? From the Western Sahara to Ireland, those And I think that our colleagues, there's a reason why they have relationships with people there. In the context of Turtle Island or the United States, when people in Ferguson hold up free Palestine signs and people in Palestine hold the same thing, or when George Floyd is murdered by brutality through a deadly exchange with the occupying army of the Israeli state that are trained together, right? In a black site in Georgia (laughs) on a campus, which is like nobody's allowed to go in except IDF soldiers and law enforcement. That reveals why the solidarity is so important and why there is already a structure that's there. We don't actually have to try very hard to link these things up. 
But back to Stephen's point about a non-empty identity politics. It's also not about the collapse of specificities of identity, because I think there's something really important about the histories that are there, the social formations, the cultural sort of valences, that ironically, a universal humanism wants to disappear entirely. And so that's the commuting between, I think, a logics that speak already to a, a global solidarity and then the specificities. And what I'll finally say is we're in fascist times, the global world order, right? All of us are contending with fascist, whether it's in the state now known as Israel or in you know Europe or here in the United States or in Brazil, wherever, right? Fascism is upon us. And that is why we can't get bogged down in specificities alone because we're all needed. <laughs> in this struggle against fascism. And I just want to I just want to say something very brief, which I completely agree with Laura. And I'm but I also kind of want to take that and also hone it or pivot to understand that Palestine does remain one of the emblematic power flashpoints yes. of this conversion of settler colonialism, racial capitalism, global imperialism, mm -hmm. regional wars, and in fighting the struggle for the liberation of Palestine, we have to understand that, that it is essential. Mm -hmm. There is no bullshit labor movement in the UK without supporting the national liberation of the Palestinian people. Right. And I'm not saying that just because the UK is a settler colonial power in occupied Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. You know? So for your listeners, you are a settler colonial state and, <laughs> and Northern Ireland is occupied, you know, mm -hmm. um, but there's a relationship between Northern Ireland and, 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 uh, and Palestine. And there's a relationship between capitalism and Northern Ireland and Palestine. And there's a relationship between imperialism, racial capitalism, you know, racism, colonialism and Palestine. So I think we do need to understand why Palestine is important mm -hmm. as the emblematic one of the one of the emblematic sites of struggle for national for for for, for liberation and anti capitalist and, and our anti capitalist internationalist movement. This has been such an amazing conversation. Are there any things that we feel like we've missed, or you guys want to go back over, or any kind of final comments that you'd like to kind of leave things on before we kind of come to a close I mean you don't have to if you feel like you've said everything but uh, I mean content we just want to thank you for your engagement in this for your own commitments for platforming Palestine for giving voice to us and to our comrades and uh, speaking of capitalism I will end on this is that it has been a struggle with our with Rutledge to kind of look at its criminal pricing <laughs> and to look at how capitalism determines what sees the light of day and then what is accessible and what's not. And we a uh, shout out to our amazing editor, Natalia Mortensen, who has worked so hard. This will be in paperback. It starts pre-order on December 19th. You can use the flyer for 20% off over top of the major discount that a paperback gets. And the, the, the flyer is FLY22. And you can 
get it in paper. And that is so important to yeah, us. Almost affordable. Now. Um, I know it's so important <laughs> to us because we were just like, have you read this book? Like this is, you know, embarrassing. It, it's embarrassing. <laughs> it flies in the face of everything, but it is also a commentary on the state of the world that we're in. I we're, we're so grateful that despite that, this has circulated and found vibrancy. It just won the Palestine Book Award uh, with the Middle East Monitor. And so we're very proud of that, but also we're exuberant that this is now um, coming out in paperback. Thank you to Lara and Stephen for such a wonderful conversation and thank you for listening to Red Medicine. Make sure you tune in next week for a conversation with Emmy O'Brien and Alex Colston, two of the editors of Parapraxis magazine.